The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We have been looking at Exodus, and again, I am endeavoring tonight not to go verse by verse through chapter 7 at this present time, but rather to look over all ten plagues. And we began to do this uh, last time, uh, and I want to continue where we're at. The ten plagues were ten acts of direct judgment from the hand of God on Egypt. And we're going to see unfolded before us uh, over the next few weeks, God willing, as we have an opportunity to study, these acts of judgment. The first was the turning of the waters of the Nile into blood in chapter 7, verse 14 through 25. Secondly, frogs covered the land and entered the homes of the Egyptians in chapter 8, verse 1 through 5. And then lice or gnats, some kind of small uh, insect, were made to attack the bodies of the Egyptians. I can't imagine what that must have been like. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 16 through 19. Fourth, swarms of insects, probably flies, invaded their homes and covered the land. And fifth, a terrible disease, some kind of a plague, struck the flocks, the livestock of the Egyptians. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. Number six, boils and sores attacked man and beast. In chapter 9, verse 8 through 12. And then the seventh plague was thunder and hail pouring down on Egypt, chapter 9, verse 18 through 35. Eighthly, locusts consumed all vegetation, ate everything that was green. So when the locusts were finished, there was nothing living left uh, green, nothing alive left in Egypt, a terrible plague. And then number nine, thick darkness, a darkness so thick it could be felt, came on Egypt and covered the land for three days, chapter 10, verse 21 through 29. And then finally, the plague on the firstborn, the plague during the Passover when the firstborn of man and beast were slain. These are dreadful judgments, are they not? When you see the hand of the Lord moving out in a mighty way to judge and bring vengeance on the Egyptians and also to liberate his people, uh, the Israelites, and bring them out of Egypt into the promised land, all it can do is cause us to tremble. I remember when I uh, read for the first time the account of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter uh, 5 when they fall down dead having lied to God, to the Holy Spirit, and it says, and fear fell on all who heard of these events. Uh, I think it's a sense in which all of us are sinners. All of us are sinners, and we would all be subject to the judgment and the wrath of God were it not for Christ. And sometimes, as the African hymnal says, it just makes us want to tremble when we look at the power of God and realize that this God, the God that we're studying, the God who did this to Egypt, was at one point our enemy. At one point we were enemies of God apart from Christ. We were under the wrath of God and we were uh, in effect defying him. Puny little us standing in the face of such a mighty and powerful God. And the amazing thing is in the middle of it, in Exodus 9, God says to Pharaoh, I want you to know that I've been holding myself back. I've been holding myself back. I've restrained myself. For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and hit you with a plague so hard, I would have wiped you from the face of the earth. This is nothing for God. And so it makes me tremble. It makes me tremble to wonder and think about what it was like or what it would be like to have God as your enemy. 
And that is the condition of all apart from Christ. It's a terrifying thing, isn't it? And it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we persuade men. So we should drink in these plagues. We should drink in a sense of the, of the uh, to borrow a phrase, shock and awe of these plagues. We should drink it in and be stunned at it and say this is the wonder of our God and this is what the cross saved us from. Isn't that incredible? That our God would be our enemy. Now last time we began by looking at the purpose of the plagues and we got through that. We saw that it was a public manifestation of the power of God. God wanted to make a name for himself and display his power to the ends of the earth that sinners like Rahab would hear about it and be saved, that they would also tremble and that they would realize that God is not to be trifled with. And if he's extending amnesty and forgiveness, we should grab it. We should take it quickly. So the power of God, a public manifestation, also a manifestation of divine wrath, and judgment and vengeance. Our God is a God of vengeance. We should not forget that. Remember that the Lord said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. This is our God. And so he's bringing vengeance on the Egyptians for their sins. He brings judgment on them. Also, he brings judgment upon the gods of Egypt. And we didn't develop this, and I don't know if we'll get to it tonight, perhaps next week. But how each one of the plagues lined up with a specific deity or two of the Egyptians that were under judgment from God. We'll develop that more next time, God willing. Also, we saw a demonstration of human responsibility a complete display of the accountability that we have before God. As each plague is somewhat of a stopping point in which Pharaoh could give over the, uh, the Israelites and obey God and send them off, uh, but instead he continues to harden his heart or God hardens his heart. <clears throat> but in either case, we have a sense of human responsibility. I've been struck before by something I'd never noticed before studying this time, that God upholds Pharaoh's right to rule over Egypt. He does not abrogate that, but rather persuades him within the context of his rule to obey his word. And so he is king of kings, but the kings still sit in their thrones, don't they? And they're accountable for the decisions that they make. And so God rules in a mighty way. And so we have not just a display of human responsibility, but we also have a sense of how God works within that human responsibility to accomplish his ends. He's very persuasive, isn't he? He's able to get what he wants through persuasion. We also see a solemn warning to all nations. Anyone who touches God touches the apple, or touches Israelites, touches the apple of his eye, he says. And so he says, I will bless those who bless you, but whoever curses you, I will curse. And so we have a sense that the Egyptians are under a curse because they have uh, violated this. And then we see also testing toward Israel. We're going to talk about more, more in a moment. Now, we developed also the arrangement of the plagues. You remember how we saw that they were in, in three cycles of three with the tenth plague standing by itself. And we saw that in, in each case there was a warning before the first two plagues, but not before the third. And so there was a warning before plague number one and number two. God commanded Moses to go out and confront uh, Pharaoh early in the morning, perhaps, as he was going out to the river to offer a libation, perhaps, to the river God, something like that. And he would go and confront him, and he would communicate, and he would say, let my people go. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And so there was a confrontation, and sometimes a very specific warning. If you don't let them go, frogs will get into your kneading troughs. It leaves nothing for imagination. This is what's going to happen to you. 
So God is very gracious here and gives a warning ahead of time twice out of the three times. But the third time, he comes like a thief in the night. Without warning, he comes and brings judgment. And so the wrath falls without warning. And so we see that it is up to us, therefore, to make the most of the warnings that God gives us. He doesn't owe us a single one, not one. But he's made many warnings, hasn't he? As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, he says in Matthew 24. And so we have our warning. We have been warned. We have been told that he will come like a thief in the night. And so therefore we should be ready. We should be like the servant who gets himself ready always and is not like the profligate or the wicked servant who, who gets drunk and beats his fellow servants. And then his master comes at a time when he's not aware of and a day is, he is not waiting for him and judgment comes because he's not ready. Or like the five foolish virgins who don't have oil for their lamps and they're not ready for the coming. They're not ready when the time comes. There's a sense of urgency here. Two warnings we get, the third we do not. And then the judgment comes. And then it starts again. We also see a sense of escalation, don't we? As each judgment becomes a little bit worse. At first, he's just striking somewhat the convenience of the Israelites. You might say, I mean, of the Egyptians. You might say, how was uh, making the waters of the Nile into blood just striking at the convenience? Well, realize that there was still water to be had. Because the Egyptians were digging along the Nile for fresh water. And they found it. That's how uh, the, the magicians were able to turn water into blood. They had to have some water that hadn't been turned into blood. And so it just became that much more difficult to drink water. But it wasn't a severe judgment in, in, in that he was bringing death immediately on the Egyptians. The same thing with the frogs. I mean, now that's an inconvenience. I mean, it's not dire. It's disgusting. But it's not, it's not anything more than just taking away the pleasure of life. And you can imagine that it would take away the pleasure of life. I mean, simple pleasures, like just lying down after a hard day work. All right? You just stretch out on your bed and you put your head on a pillow. And imagine the squishing sound. Or maybe you'd rather not imagine the squishing sound. But the fact is, this is just a judgment on the, on the pleasure and comfort of the Egyptians. That's all. Same thing with the, with the gnats, although this is a little more serious. There starts to be a sense of escalation. It's always getting worse and worse. What does this teach you? One thing I've noticed in the Christian life is when God has a lesson for you to learn, you will learn that lesson. When he has something for you to do, you will do what he wants you to do. The question is when and after how much cost. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Have you ever noticed you're at a point, you decide not to do the right thing, you go around and meander around and come around, there it is again, only it's more expensive now. God isn't going away. He wants you to learn this lesson. He wants you to do this thing. And so it's a matter of how much you want to pay before you do what God wants you to do. And so it is with these escalating plagues. It just keeps getting more and more and more expensive to disobey God. And so it is the, the arrangement of the plagues as it gets ever more severe. We also see that at first God includes uh, the Israelites, doesn't he? There's no distinction made. Everybody gets the same at the beginning. But then at a certain point he begins to make a distinction. He doesn't bring the plagues on the Israelites the way he does on the Egyptians. He says, so that you may know that I make a distinction among my people and yours, that there's a difference between how I treat Israel and how I treat you, the Egyptians. So send messengers and see that there's no plague on their livestock, for example. Uh, they were spared. Or there was no hailstorm in the land of Goshen where the, the Israelites were. I make a distinction between my people and yours. So he makes a distinction. Now, the fact that he does that only at a certain point in the plague shows that the earlier plagues, the first three, uh, they underwent as well. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and even the Israelites have to go through some suffering in this plague. I read a commentary that said that the, or the Israelites didn't suffer any of the plagues at all, but were protected, and that is not accurate. They went through the first three. But then at a certain point, God says, I make a distinction. And then also we see that he makes a distinction uh, between Egyptians that fear the word of the Lord and those that don't. You remember that because the plague of the hail came and the Egyptians that obeyed and listened and took to heart what Moses had warned, what did they do? Well, they took their livestock and put them under shelter. But those that blew off or disregarded the word left their, their livestock out and suffered grievous damage. And so he makes a distinction even within the Egyptians between those that hear and believe and obey the word and those that don't. And so we see some order and progression of the plagues and ever-increasing uh, severity. And so we see it comes to a certain point where the severity of God becomes so great that Pharaoh yields and he obeys. The steady increase in severity shows also God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. He doesn't bring the worst plague first, does he? He doesn't bring immediately the full force of his... As a matter of fact, he never really does. Because the plague on the firstborn is still just the plague on the firstborn, but not on the whole nation. He could have wiped them all out entirely. But God shows kindness. He shows tolerance. He shows patience. And so in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he asks the, the steady, hard-hearted sinner, he says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? And so at, at, at all points, he's leading Egypt toward repentance. He's leading Pharaoh toward repentance. And he's bearing with great patience even a vessel of wrath like Pharaoh, bearing with great patience his obstinance kindness, tolerance, and patience. We also see a development of Israel's faith. Now, why would Israel's faith need developing? Why do the plagues have any benefit for Israel? Why do they need it? Well, realize they've been 400 years in Egypt. They've seen and been saturated with the Egyptian religious system. They've seen Egyptian gods everywhere. Everywhere they turned, there were gods. And the Egyptians believed in the gods. It wasn't, it wasn't just a state religion or some kind of going through the motions thing. They really genuinely believed in the power of their gods. And so as a result, there was a, uh, an idolatrous nature that in, in Israel, a heart of idolatry that had to, be, had to be trained out of them. They were very quick to make a golden calf when the time came. You remember when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. It was a small thing for them to make an idol because they'd been saturated in this for many years. And so for 400 years, God wants uh, to strip them of their commitment, let's say, or their worldview that's been shaped for centuries of polytheism, of Egyptian deities. He also wants to develop their faith. He wants to develop their faith. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, faith comes from what? Where does faith come? From hearing what, though? The word of the Lord. And so they need to see that God's word is his bond. When he speaks, it is as good as done. When he says there will be a plague of hail, unlike any you've ever seen before, and then it happens, well, that shapes your faith, doesn't it? You begin to trust in the word of God. Now, what's the overall word that he wants them to trust? The covenant promised Abraham. He wants them to believe that God is going to give them the land that he promised to give him in Genesis 15 when he promised to make Abraham's offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, and he said, to them I will give this land. He wanted them to believe the word, and they didn't, did they? 
Even after all this display, their heart was one of unbelief toward God's word. And so they did not enter the promised land, but their children did. But you see how he's having to work with Israel and develop their faith. And the plagues uh, have uh, a role to play in shaping and developing the faith of, of Israel. We also see, fifthly, the demonic imitation of the plagues. Look at uh, Exodus 7, uh, 10 through 12. Exodus 7, 10 through 12, we see the first uh, demonic imitation. It says, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Well, you remember this. This was what uh, God had done to convince Moses that he had this kind of power. Remember in Exodus chapter 4, he, he gives him a display. And so he says, what's that in your hand, Moses? He says, a staff. And he says, throw it down. And it turns into a serpent. And then he says, reach forth and grab it by the tail, which took some courage and some faith. And so Moses did that, and it, and it changed back into a staff. Well, he did this display before the Israelites, and they believed that God had sent him. But now it's time to, to show the display before Pharaoh. You know, it's kind of funny when you stop and think about it. This is such a tame thing. Pharaoh, you should have done it when he did that serpent staff thing. I mean, think of what would have been saved if you had just said, oh, look, God is mighty and powerful. I'll let the people go. I mean, that would have been enough. But think of all that would have been spared. What a simple and, and kind of innocent moment that was. Especially when, look what happens, uh, Pharaoh summons the wise men and sorcerers and Egyptian magicians do the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Well, that's enough, isn't it? It should be, I would think. But here's a key thing. Many of the commentators that I read tend to minimize these magicians as though they were just tricksters, uh, like sleight-of-hand type folks, uh, magicians who can do certain things, make things appear and disappear. Uh, they weren't. I think they were demonically empowered magicians. They had, they were, they had the powers of the demonic realm behind them. And as much as these, and these are conservative commentators they are doing this, they're trying to minimize uh, the evil here. But that does not bring glory to God. Let's let the devil bring his worst. Let's let him do anything and everything he can do and realize how quickly God leaves him in the dust. Funny I should say that because that was exactly the point at which he left him, in the dust. When he said, take a handful of dust and throw it and see what happens, and it turns into gnats. That's the very thing that the magicians could never do. The very thing that Darwin and evolution can never do. Create life out of inanimate matter. Only God can do that. And so let the devil do his worst. These were demonically empowered. Do not suppose for a moment that there was nothing at all behind the Egyptian religious system. Oh, there was. The gods were real. They had demonic impersonators behind them each and every one. The Apostle Paul tells us that in Corinthians, that when you're partaking in a table of idols, you're eating at the table of demons. And so there is a demonic impersonator behind these gods. So let's not minimize this demonic imitation. Look also at, at uh, 7, 20 through 23. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the, in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt, but the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. 
And Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take it to heart. Look again at Exodus 8:7, with the frogs. It says again, the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs uh, come up on the land of Egypt. Now, you'll notice that the demonic impersonators can't do the obvious thing that you would think that they would do. Now, what is the obvious thing? If the water's been turned into blood, what should they do? Turn it back. They cannot do it. They cannot reverse what God has done. All they can ever do is make it even worse. You want blood? I'll give you even more blood. Well, what's that going to do? Hey, you want frogs? Look at this. Here's more frogs. Okay, they cannot reverse the curse. They cannot reverse the plague. They can only make it worse. So there's a limitation to their power, a limitation of what they can do. <clears throat> but what I, <clears throat> excuse me, what I urge you to say, to see, is that there is a demonic power at work here. I cannot do what the magicians did. I can't. I can't make a staff turn into a serpent. I can't. I cannot make water turn into blood. I can't make frogs come up like this. I can't do these things. These are supernatural. And let us therefore not underestimate the supernatural forces of evil in the heavenly realms that oppose us in Christ. They are powerful, they are strong, they are mighty. And as Luther put it, were not the right man on our side, we would be destroyed. Our striving would be losing. We would be destroyed. We would, we would strive in vain. Let us also realize that this is going to happen in the future. What do I mean? I mean demonic miracles. The deme demonic power of supernatural display. It's going to happen in the future. In Matthew 24, 24, Jesus said, For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Is it possible? No. But that's what they're going to try to do. What is it prophesying? What is Christ prophesying there? They will do great signs and wonders. Let's not underestimate that. Look, if you would, at uh, Revelation 16, 13 and 14. Revelation 16. Right in the middle of the cycle of all of these plagues and all of the terrible things that are yet to come in the future. Revelation 16, 13 and 14. It says, Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. Now that's interesting, isn't it? So the frog is kind of an unclean thing, kind of a symbol of evil. I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Do you see that? Demonic forces of evil at work at that end time period of history. They're demonic, powerful beings that come out and deceive the kings of the earth and gather them together for battle. And one more, look at 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 11.
this is a prediction of the Antichrist, not called such here by Paul. The word Antichrist you'll find in 1 John, but not in Paul. Paul calls him the lawless one, the man of sin, so to speak, the lawless one. And then it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 and following, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. Very, very interesting verses. Do you see what's going on? In the future, around the time of the Antichrist, he will have the power to do great signs and wonders, a powerful delusion done, it says here, uh, by Satan. It's in accordance with the work of Satan, he says, in, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles. What is a counterfeit miracle? Well, it's a display of great power, perhaps violating our normal sense of, of the laws of nature, but which leads in exactly the wrong direction leads away from the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, a counterfeit miracle. It's an incredible display of power, but leading in the wrong direction. And it's done by the power of Satan. But what's interesting here is in 2 Thessalonians 2, it says it's really ultimately sent by God, a powerful delusion sent by God to entice them. And why? Because their hearts are hard and they will not believe the truth. So he said, if you want lie, here's the biggest lie there has ever been in the history of this world the lie of the Antichrist when he does these great signs and wonders. And they will believe, and they will be drawn off. What are we saying then? We're saying that the demonic forces of evil, the satanic forces that surround us, are very powerful. They can do things we can't do. And were we not protected, and were there not some restraints on God's part, and that's what I think it means in Second Thessalonians, God takes the restraint off and says, go to it. And they do. But God is restraining them. God is powerful to limit them. And so they cannot do any of the plagues in Egypt except the ones God permits. And when he says, stop, enough is enough, I'm leaving you behind at plague three, they're left behind. And no more plagues will happen. Our God rules powerfully over the force of evil. Isn't that wonderful? And isn't it wonderful that the man of sin, the most powerful evil being in the history of this world, the most powerful evil man will be overthrown by the breath of Christ's mouth. He will simply say, be gone, and he's gone. This is the sword coming out of the mouth of the Lord when he comes. A sharp, double-edged sword. He gives the word, and it's done. He's finished. There's no struggle, no strife. This is the God of the plagues of Egypt, and this is the God of the future second coming of Christ. He has great power. But let us be humble, and let us realize we should not bring a reviling accusation against the devil as though we have any kind of power or authority. We have nothing. And were, were Christ not on our side, did he not protect us as he did with Job with a hedge of protection around us? Did he not filter our temptations? We would be, we would be drawn under in an instant. We will be dragged under. Were he not protecting us every moment? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation provides a way of escape. So he's filtering everything. Satan is so frustrated. Can't get at you. God is powerful. So that's a kind of overview lesson. One last thing I want to give you, and I've already started to hint at it, but it's the prophetic forecasts of these plagues.
We're going to see it again. We're going to see it again in the future. A.W. Pink, in his commentary, lists 16 points of comparison between the plagues of the Exodus and the future of Israel, as delineated especially in the book of Revelation. Listen to them, and with, the, with these we're going to close. First, during the time of Jacob's trouble in the future, Israel shall again be sorely oppressed and afflicted. Secondly, they will cry unto God, and he will hear and answer their prayer. Thirdly, God will command their oppressors to let them go. Fourthly, God will send two witnesses to work miracles before their enemies. These are the witnesses in Revelation 11, just as Moses and Aaron stood before uh, the God of, of the world of their time, so these will stand before the God of their age, the Antichrist. Fifth, their enemies will also perform miracles. We just went through that very, very clearly and carefully. Sixth, God will execute sore judgments on the world. Seventh, God will protect his own people from them. Eighth, water will again be turned into blood. Revelation 8.8 8 and 16.4 and 5. Terrible. Only this time it's not the Nile. It's the oceans. It's every fresh spring of water when wormwood comes down and it all turns bitter. What a terrifying thing. I mean, this was just a little microcosm. I'm talking about Exodus now. A tiny little microcosm of what is coming on the earth in the future. Have you ever, you know, said, well, we might be the final generation. You know, we might not die. Everyone will die except that final generation. Would you want to live through this? What a terrifying thing. What a terrifying thing. Ninthly, satanic frogs will appear. We already covered that. The satanic demonic frogs, they come up out of the mouths of the beast and of the uh, false prophet. Number 10, a plague of locusts shall be sent, Revelation 9, 2 through 11. 11, God will send boils and sores on the people, Revelation 16, 2. 12, terrible hailstorms shall be thrown down from heaven. 13, there shall be awful darkness, Revelation 16, 10. A terrible darkness. 14, just as Pharaoh hardened his heart, so will the wicked in the day to come, Revelation 9, 20 and 21. 15, death will consume multitudes. Huge numbers of people will die. I mean, far greater than in the day of the 10th plague in the Passover. And then 16, Israel will be delivered by the second coming of Christ. Close with me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.